the hands explored pushing aside drugs and ampules and syringes with no interest at all. Now they found something and held it up. In the first dim light, there was a gleam of silver. The shadowy thing left the room. Any guesses as to who that author is? That's a, a quite a distinct style of writing. Maybe some of the listeners might have picked up on it already. Thank you for tuning to this week's episode of WGBC Podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing how to dial in your project's atmosphere and going over Jess's latest submission on her book, Ides of August. Uh, you can read her ongoing first draft over at patreon.com slash WGBC podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast this week. So in this week's installment, I want to talk a little bit about atmosphere. So I think a lot of people might confuse atmosphere with setting, but believe it or not, or not they are actually different things. And your atmosphere does play off the setting. Um, like Lance talked about in his world building episode, atmosphere is something that comes along with your writing style, but it's really great to think about when you're in the early stages of your first draft because it provides an overall mood to your story and it just enriches the reader's experience. So not necessarily a motif or a theme, but it's a feeling that readers get as they go through your book. A little bit difficult to define, but you'll definitely understand it when you read it. And I think for this particular episode, what I want to do is take two random selections from books, and I'm going to read them out loud on the podcast. And then I'm going to ask Lance and Pat what they think the story is about based on the atmospheric writing. So I have two different selections, and I'm going to start with this first one right now. As she lay down in the cold grass and fell asleep, unicorns are not the wariest of all wild things, but they sleep soundly when they sleep. All the same, if she had not been dreaming of home, she would have surely roused at the sound of wheels and jingling coming closer through the night, even though the wheels were muffled in rags and had little bells wrapped in wool. But she was very far away, farther than the soft bells could go, and she did not wake. There were nine wagons, each draped in black, each drawn by a lean black horse, and each bearing barred sides like teeth when the wind blew through the black hangings. The lead wagon was driven by a squat old woman, and it bore signs on its shrouded sides that said in big letters, Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival, and below in smaller print, Creatures of Night, Brought to Light. When the first right wagon drew even with the place, where the unicorn was asleep, the old woman suddenly pulled her black horse to a stop. All the other wagons stopped too and waited silently as the old woman swung herself to the ground with an ugly grace. Gliding close to the unicorn, she peered down at her for a long time and said, well, well, bless my old husk of a heart, and here I thought I'd seen the last of them. Her voice left a flavor of honey and gunpowder on the air. Okay, so based on that little reading. It was only three paragraphs. I want you to tell me a little bit about what you think the world is like and like any information you gleaned about where the story might be going from that little selection. So maybe we can 
start with Lance, like any first impressions you got. Absolutely. Uh, what I think the world is like, um, there's magic, It's, but it's dwindling out of the world, which I think is somewhat common. Um, and then uh, if there's a traveling carnival, I think we're looking at like a kind of like a standard tech level for medieval fantasy. Uh, but for the storyline, I have a, a, a concrete guess. Okay. I think it is a YA coming of age travel log story. Okay. And I did think at the end, I was like, uh, smell of gunpowder, a little bit of stuff. I was like, that's fine. That's in YA books. No problem. So that was <laughs> coming of, who's coming of age? Or do you think the woman's not the, the main character? I think the unicorn is coming of age. Oh, the unicorn is. I think the unicorn's the main character. Okay. I was thinking some kind of like Victorian era type thing um, where I don't know how, where she's collecting these animals, but maybe she's got like some kind of mysterious forest only she knows. I don't know. But uh, I thought she was the main character. So um, what's the overall feeling you got? Did it feel like foreboding? Did it feel, did you feel safe? Did it feel like the character's intentions were clear um, did you get any particular feeling from that reading? I can't tell if it's a sinister kind of menagerie of animals. Mm, it's mm-hmm. all black, and there's a old, old lady with a with a with a, a gunpowder, you know, breath. I don't know. It could be sinister, but also it doesn't have to be. She didn't just like right away start rubbing her hands together like Mr. Burns, you know, when she saw the last unicorn of all time. I was also thinking more towards like spooky than mm. sinister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I agree, I agree with that, Pat. I think it could be easily spooky. I thought it was a little bit spooky. Okay, well, you guys are correct. So... The novel itself is called The Last Unicorn. It's written by Peter S. Beagle, and he's an author known for creating great atmosphere in his books. So I just want to point out that um, the character, uh, the old woman, is Mommy Fortuna, and she does operate a carnival, and she has creatures um, which she enchants to be... um, to look like, you know, scary creatures, but they're really normal, like underneath her enchant- enchantments. And I think that that section is great because it really evokes, um, without saying so much, like without telling you right out who, who those people are, they're mysterious, you know, cover when you have something covered in like black drapings, they're going under the cover of night, they're muffling their wheels. It really paints this picture of maybe something that's not quite legal or is kind of underground. Um, and so I, I thought that was like a great way to evoke this atmosphere of like Pat said, like spookiness or something not quite right. Um, so you can see that by the author using that language, um, he's able to give us like a really good idea of kind of what's going on, like in that moment. So we're going to move on now to the second selection. And um, if you thought the first one was spooky, this one might be even spookier. Just before the first signs of dawn touched the sky in the East, there were footsteps on the stairs. They were slow and clumsy, but purposeful. A shadow moved in the shadows of the hall. 
A smell came with it, a stench. Lewis, even in his thick sleep, muttered and turned away from that smell. There was the steady pull and release of respiration. The shape stood outside the master bedroom door for some little time, not moving. Then it came inside. Lewis's face was buried in his pillow. White hands reached out, and there was a click as the black doctor's bag by the bed was opened. A low clink and shift as all the things inside were moved. The hands explored, pushing aside drugs and ampules and syringes with no interest at all. Now they found something and held it up. In the first dim light, there was a gleam of silver. The shadowy thing left the room. Okay, so I just want to get your thoughts on what type of book you think that is. I have one word. It's okay. suffocating. Okay. That's good. Mm. Yeah, the like talking about the hands as if they were kind of like the ones calling the shots was a very interesting mm-hmm. choice. I mm-hmm. wish I had saved Spooky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, any guesses as to who that author is? That's a, a quite a distinct style of writing. Maybe some of the listeners might have picked up on it already. They put it in the comments. No, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a selection from Stephen King. Mm. It was the book Pet Cemetery. Do you know what that book's about? Anyone? No, I do not. Um, it's about a cemetery in a small town in Maine. Um, it like kind of close to like a rural town where everyone would go and bury their dead pets and then for some reason in this particular cemetery it raises the pets up from the dead and um, a tragedy happens where a little boy dies and his father decides to bury him in the pet cemetery and so that scene is that little boy coming back to life but they're never the same Mm -hmm. right when they rise up from the cemetery it's horrifying Um, that was one of the first Stephen King books I read and from time to time I still get nightmares about it. I haven't even seen the movie but I just think the particular words he uses for example like if you're thinking you know a zombie kind of rising up from the grave he makes the distinct he uses very distinct language like he says you know clumsy up the stairs the way the hands are kind of working maybe of their own volition they're clinking through something you know like it's not acting as a human would act in that moment sometimes it's easier to show people rather than to tell them what atmosphere is about but anyway here are some tips to help you create atmosphere so the number one thing is to be tactile and that means using the senses to write. So you want your characters to be actually engaging with what is in their environment around them as opposed to just like um, interacting with it as a means to an end. Like, for example, if a character walks into a tavern, you can describe how the light is bouncing off the walls, you know, how the wood grain feels underneath their hands, what the smell is is like, you know, we can tell a lot about what that tavern is by using the, the senses. Um, smell itself can really depict a mood. Um, brainstorm words that actually describe your, your mood. Um, and It's important to, like we've talked about in the podcast before, engage with material that's similar to what you're 
actually writing about. So if you want to write a Dracula story or a vampire story, those tend to have very specific atmospheres, like dreary, dark at night, because vampires are very often opposed to light. So there are lots of great ways to create that dark atmosphere. And sometimes if you yourself um, are able to, you know, watch and learn and see what other people are doing to create that atmosphere, it's easier to do it in your own work as well. Um, another thing I wrote down is make sure you're holding that, um, image or idea of what the atmosphere looks like in your mind as you write. So I often will create Pinterest boards visually if I want to make sure I'm creating like an accurate atmosphere in my book. So I can very quickly go back to those pictures and look at them and engage with them. I also create playlists for all my stories. Um, and that helps put me in a particular mood to develop the atmosphere the way I want to. It's not easy for all books. I will say that. And you don't always need to have a very distinct atmosphere, but the more you think about adding in those tactile elements, the sensory elements, the more enriching the experience is going to be for your reader anyway. So you might as well, Think about it as you're writing your first draft. And then this is always something you can go back and fix in your second draft. But yeah, really making sure that you're using sensory detail, you are keeping your images consistent, um, focusing on the language and using creative words to describe what's happening around you are great ways to develop an atmosphere. I, um, that was awesome. If you have a writer's group, you should also do this, like share lessons every time. I didn't know anything about that. So thank you. Guys, that Stephen King book, no joke, is so scary. Won't read it. Thank you. It's really awful. Yeah, it's really scary. Oh, what you said about, I know you said about making Pinterest boards and playlists. Now, me and Pat have talked about how we don't listen to music while we write. We, we can't multitask, but you can listen to music. Uh, I have tried, uh, I have, I was able to find uh, a song. I, I was listening to some music and I found one part of one song that was really perfect for the climax of my last book. That's and awesome. That's what I was, and that's what I was thinking about in my head. And I would listen to it, you know, when I, I said I had that big burst, where I wrote 15,000 words in like one day. Um, and that was, and that's what I was listening to, like in between writing, right? Even just that one, that two minute excerpt on, on repeat. Totally. And I, Lance, I know that you say like thinking about your work, like outside of writing it is a very important part of the process. And I totally relate to that because sometimes what I do, if I'm feeling like really uninspired, I'll stick in my playlist and I'll go for a walk for 10 minutes in the fresh air and just like ruminate about this problem I'm having. And like, getting back to that like atmosphere, the tone, the setting, like the simpler things as opposed to all the problems the characters are facing sometimes does help me come up with a solution. So, you know, listening to your playlist while you're ruminating, that's still like writing technically, I would say. I thought you were going to, I thought one of the excerpts was going to be from Name of the Wind because I, uh, the first, the first paragraph of that book, pretty good for atmosphere. That is true. I think, I love the atmosphere in those books. And 
now maybe a little bit harder to describe than like a uh like you know a fairy tale fantasy like the last unicorn is or a like straight up horror book like pet cemetery but you always know in a patrick rothfuss book what the tavern is like if it's a dingy tavern if it's nice if they're serving good food you know if the sheets on the bed are scratchier if they're comfortable if um the main character feels good somewhere a little bit uneasy based on his surroundings like it's fantastic in that way and it really adds another layer to that story I think that's why it's so popular same with Game of Thrones I would say Game of Thrones is unique because it has different atmospheres within the same world so you can really tell like you know I don't know if you would agree Lance like Winterfell is super cozy it's it has that it reflects the close-knitness of the family in a way and then King's Landing is like very grand but very kind of cold and stone and doesn't have that same well in mood. in the in the in the the castle in King's Landing there's literally spies walking through the walls that's Whereas right in, in Winterfell it's cold outside but there's hot water running through the walls so it keeps you warm kind of like yeah. you said it's very cozy yeah 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 yeah. There's a good comparison but, there. I never realized that before. Yeah. Um yeah, I just I just love it when authors do that. I guess some people might complain and say, Oh my gosh, like this is taking so long to describe. But I mean, like, I don't mind it. I'm I'm so invested in the world at that point, you know. That's my biggest fear though. That's why I never I like, especially at the starts of my books, I describe basically nothing. My I would rather confuse people with action that they don't understand than bore people with or what I perceive to be boring. And then whenever I write a descriptive part, uh, Pat reassures me that it's fine. Yeah. And Jess is like, oh, yeah, this description. Yay. And I'm like, well, you know, I just I don't want to bore people. I'm so scared of that. Right. And I know I don't need to be that scared. It's um, one of those yeah. um, writing rules that you learn very early on, like in writing class, like everyone hammers it into your skull, like never leave your readers bored, never leave them bored. So you overcorrect, but we all have to find a way as authors, like come back to the middle. And the only way you can do that is by writing trial and error, seeing what works for you and you will eventually develop that style. But yeah, like there is that happy medium for sure. And if you're erring on the side of not doing that enough, it's probably better than doing it too much. I tried to not do it at all for my, for Corporal Johnson. With the first part, I tried to put like as little narration as possible. I I think though with Pat, well now what we're going into narration, but Pat, I've, I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but what I was talking about, what I would always say every time last year is that your dialogue is the best. Like it's, it's impactful the best and your dialogue sets a super specific tone for every, every part. I think that is true. Um, and like when you have your, your army based dialogue, it's really specific when you have your Chinese revolution dialogue, it's very specific. I just think that you're doing it, but if I could do atmosphere the way you do, I would be happy because you're doing, you're, you're doing double, you're double dipping with your, dialogue you're getting us character development and moving the plot forward and setting the atmosphere it's just yeah, not done any, doing it in a normal in a standard way totally there's more than one way to do that and dialogue is actually a really good example too because it's very hard to get your characters to talk in different ways um based on like their background and where they're coming from and like the own their own mood that you're trying to set um 
And some books are more atmospheric than others, for sure. For example, the book I recently wrote, Spellbound, was almost like a gothic Victorian um, in the way that the buildings were set up and the clothes people wore and the way they spoke to each other. However, this book is definitely not as atmospheric. So I'm trying to, again, strike that happy medium between having like an action-focused book, but I want the reader to be able to experience it with their senses and and get a, a feeling of the tone from that as well. So, um, yeah. What's it, your, it, um, do you have like a, a word board or whatever for, for the tone for this book? I don't have a word board, but I do have a Pinterest board. So um, what I'll say is my Pinterest board looks very different for this book than um, Spellbound. So the pictures for Spellbound are, you know, girls in ball gowns and like shadowy corridors and, um, you know, like candlelit rooms, like things like that. Whereas for this one, like everything's in very bright light. It's happening a lot like in the daytime um like modern technology and old technology kind of like merging things like that so it's very different but I'm trying I'm trying to see how you know if what I did for Spellbound is going to work for for this book as well if I can kind of like set up a bit of a system for myself and we'll see another way that you can do it for free which I tried and when I say for free I mean like without adding extra words really Mm. um Another way that you, I tried to do this, but I, I definitely didn't do it enough in my first book, is that I want the weather to match the mood. Oh, I'm probably yes. going to describe, yeah, I'm going to describe, oh, the sun's out. It's like, well, what does that mean, right? Like, what can that, what can, mood does that set? And there's one, um, there's lots of books that do this really well, but I'm going to pull out a movie reference for once, the one and only time I refer to a movie. Love Have it. Have either of you seen the movie Seven? the uh, oh. uh about um it's uh, one of these uh serial killer movies have i seen that movie yes so many times so many many times like yeah <laughs> you know why it took them forever to film that movie because every single scene is raining every okay. scene until the end when they show up in the field and the bad guy says open the box and they open the box and it's the person's the guy the the, whatever the person's head is in it i don't remember i saw this movie a long time ago oh yeah yeah and the person's head is in it and then the sun comes out and it's shining and they're all horrified and like this is like the complete the climax of the movie and it's a huge just it's it's a huge failure for the for the characters right it's a it's a very tragic movie and then um and I think it's awesome because it's just raining the whole time and the sun comes out and it's just the worst part. So I think that was a movie that did it really well. And that's a way you can do it for free. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. If you, again, like if you just want free nightmares for the rest of your life, great movie to watch. <laughs> I'll give one more. I just thought of one more example. Um, uh, I'm reading a book right now called Gardens of the Moon by Steven Erickson. And it is tons of, I feel like it's really, it has a really great atmosphere of kind of dark magic and, and gritty war and stuff, but it's, and it's, it takes a lot of words, but it's really exciting to read at the same time. And it's, I, I find it with, has a really good pace, but there's a book called Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. And mm-hmm. the whole series, the first sentence is ash fell from the sky. And you're like, wait, what? And that's just this world. There's constantly just ash falling and it sets this super, this, this tone. You just imagine like, there's just these volcanoes. They just spew ash, and that's just how people live. And then throughout Ugh. the book, as 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 stuff happens, there'll just be these reminders that these really 
climactic times they'll be like and ash still fell from the sky right and anyways i just think that was really that was a really cool way to do it where it becomes kind of a repetitive thing throughout the book but if you do it sparingly and well it's awesome well do you think we should get to the summary let's do it so this week i submitted part two of ides of august and here's the summary Ulrich Best promises Hugh to share with him a secret that he's uncovered northwest of Rome if he agrees to sign some papers. Meanwhile, Cassie and Milo return to the archaeological site to talk. Milo explains to Cassie that he's not from here. Palmer found him when he was eight years old on the banks of the Danube, the land Caesar conquered. He shows her an authentic Roman army knife, which Cassie is impressed by but believes is a replica. Milo asserts that Palmer is in trouble and Cassie might hold the key to helping him. But he can see she's not easily convinced. He will have to show her. Sarah Sadie Edwards is an American intelligence operative securing the scene of the bow and arrow murder. We learn that Marco was one of her agents and that she has worked with Palmer for a long time. She is surprised when Milo shows up with a shocked Cassie in tow. He asserts that Cassie might hold the key to where a secret message is left by Palmer. Sadie hints that there was a secret mission gone awry, being coy that Cass- so that Cassie doesn't gather too many details. Hugh is shown an array of incredibly beautiful Roman ar- artifacts held by Ulrich. Best implies that they are not reproductions, but originals. He tells Hugh that they have an appointment to meet a good friend of his in Alexandria. They'll be taking his private jet. The trio travel back to Rome to find the archaeological site ransacked, their computers stolen. Milo finds the half-uncovered mosaic floor and, much to Cassie's dismay, hacks it open. Uh, so last time I finished it, I my comment was, I'm really fully bought in and intrigued, and I would keep reading if I had the choice. And I felt uh, very, I felt the same way. I was really happy to pick it right back up where we left off. Uh, the action just keeps continuing, just continues and keeps building and building. Uh, I, uh, there isn't really any breaks. It feels like a high energy thriller where there isn't a moment to lose. I really thought it was funny that Palmer's emergency contact is her. Uh, and, and she's like, what? I can't call myself. That was great. Um, and I was really happy that Pat was right. Milo isn't from our world. And I think that you're, uh, I would suspect that you have a romance building between Milo and Cassie, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, I don't think that's a hot take. But um, I think that's uh, that's just where I'm at. And um, sorry, one second. Yeah, we knew that. I think. Well, we knew that. We knew she thought he um, was not bad. Yeah, she was flirting with him. We know that. Um. Oh yeah, I was like, Marco is an important member of their government. At like what, 18 years old? I was like, like, what is this, Edward the Fourth? At bosworth field like anyways i thought that was really funny because you know i don't see that all the time modern modern era um uh, i like sadie a lot we get a really complete image of her in a really short amount of time she's like worn down and exhausted by the burdens of the super important and secret job which she actually likes and is committed to uh but definitely worn down by the incompetence of the buffoons around her uh and this is really summarized really well when she bribes the police and she's like, oh, I had to bribe him more than I thought I would. It's like, you just go around bribing police officers all the time? It's like, what is your job? That's crazy. Anyways. Uh, 
I really loved the short hue chapter in the, in the middle. They're like interludes. I really like those because they're focused on, I really like interludes because they're short. They're focused on the action and what's important in a conversation. And then they break up the longer, more development bits. And that's, I think, why I use interludes. And I think you just did a, a, a great interlude with the hue interlude in the middle. And then I was really happy that we got a Milo viewpoint chapter. I know that you haven't written a lot of multi, you haven't written multi viewpoint a lot. So we've had a lot of different viewpoints. I think we've had like four or five, if you include the prologue, we've had at least five different viewpoint characters already. And we're just getting started in the book. I really like the multi viewpoint thing. So that sounded, that was really awesome. And I think similar, uh, I think uh, tying into that, you've done a solid job of picking the right point of view character for each section. You're choosing the person for whom the scene is most impactful and you're not hesitating to change the point of view character quickly either. I think some people, uh, I definitely, I do this. Like I'll, I'll, uh, even if the scene is more important for someone else, I might stay in it with my, the character I've been writing already, but you won't be, uh, you won't hesitate to change it. Uh, and I think you've also added them incrementally, which is, which is definitely good because it can get confusing when you change viewpoints very often, which, uh, and you've, but you've added them incrementally. So it's not a problem. Like after your prologue, it's Cassie for a long time and then it's Hugh and then it's Cassie again. So you're working them in slowly, which is really good. Uh, I thought about the wheel of time, which is a 14 book series with 4 million published words. I looked it up. There's 147 unique point of view, point of view characters. Oh my God. 147. But the first book, I think the first half is entirely Rand, one character. Uh, so that's where it's like, if you can see the incremental, the incrementally adding new viewpoint characters, you've done the same thing on obviously a much smaller scale than, than 14 books. And then finally, I really thought it was a nice touch that Milo doesn't have respect for the ancientness of the tiles. Why would he? He's from the old world. So, you know, if when, when she's horrified that he would just blow up some ancient tiles, I don't think about, like, when I tear out drywall, I'm not, like, admiring the drywall. That's basically what he's doing. And he just goes at it. I just thought that was a great touch. Because why would he care? It's like, it's it's just, they're just tiles to him. So that was really nice. And that's uh, that's all my comments. Right. Um, had we read all of chapter three last week? I can't remember because I went I back and read it. Was halfway it through? I think it was like halfway through. Okay, so um, I don't know if this is a nitpick or just what was in my head when I was reading that, but I feel like Hugh should be instantly negotiating his salary with um, this tech mogul. He obviously needs him. I don't think he was stupid. He should be like, all right, million bucks. I'm on that jet. No problem. Um, but you don't have, maybe that's not how he thinks, but that's how I was thinking. And you know, if you, if that's not how he thinks though, Pat makes a good point that someone might be like, well, why wouldn't he do that? He should have done that. If you don't think it's in his character to do that, you can think he can be on the plane and then be like, oh, I should have, I should have drilled him for a million before getting mm, on. That's funny too. And yeah. that way you can, either way you can double dip and the reader will know you've acknowledged it. Yeah, oh, that's a good suggestion. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, nail the hot take of Milo being from the past, but really, I mean, that's your accomplishment because you didn't really feed us much about that. And we figured it out in the first, whatever, 10 pages, just before you revealed it so perfect uh, and then we got yeah the modern replica that's yeah 
instantly, I don't think you said it out loud then, but obviously we knew that that was real. Um, and yeah, Sadie Edwards is also my favorite character. Uh, and I have a completely separate uh, story about why. Um, when she's like, so I also feel like I know exactly who she is. And and it's because uh, that paragraph where you're like, she chomped on her gum and then she's like, ah, I wish I was back home in Virginia. I'm like, I know her. Oh, and her gum popped. And uh, anyways, I'm like, yeah, I like Sadie. Uh, and then I was expecting to be like, because she was kind of a police detective type character. I was thinking that we were going the police detective route and there, she was going to be kind of chasing Cassie and them, but then they show up obviously to work with them. But then I also like the angle of she's part of the cabal and is working parallel with them, but not necessarily with the same motivations. Cause we don't know exactly what she's all about yet. Other than she's like friends with Paul. Um, then, uh, Oh, and then she's like trying to not reveal who she is. And so I wrote down, I also have one of those faces that everyone recognizes. And then since I wrote that note, I went to the beach with Frankie and, uh, and someone came up to me like 10 feet away and called me a completely different name I'd never heard before. And uh, so those faces are real. And I have one. Um, That's really funny. Welcome to FaceCast. Yeah, then we're in the room full of forgeries and he's he tells them that they're real. And this is his, I guess, vision of like, you'll believe in God, right? To go into that room. And uh, I like how he isn't very impressed with that room. Um, and uh, we're also, since they're going to Alexandria, we can kind of guess that there's definitely more than one rip. Um, so that's something else we know now. And then I am so fired up that this is a finding ancient artifact clues to save the world book because that's fantastic um you know he's cracking open the tile i'm like yes here we go <laughs> now we're on the we're on the trail um anyways i don't think you found anything in the tile yet but. and you even foreshadow it by saying archaeology is destruction and now they're just blown that's true it. oh i didn't even think of that i didn't either until now yeah they're gonna be smashing stuff to save anyways so yeah i'm, I'm pumped who's his friend in alexandria is that a hot take? Oh, I guess it's probably Emperor Augustus. Right? Isn't that who he was going for? In Alexandria? She, uh, he said, Brutus I have... Cleopatra? <laughs> I have a great friend Not there Brutus, um, who wants... Uh, uh, who who would love to have the head of uh, Octavian. Oh. Yeah. Cleopatra. And what's mm. his name? Um, why I can't, can't I confirm nor deny. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, Pat, I cut you off. Did Is there anything? No, else? that's it. That's all I have. Okay, good. I'm glad you're enjoying. I think um, what I'm also fine. So thank you for saying that thing about the interlude, Lance. Um, they're definitely like good tools to use, but I'm wondering if it's too, if it, sometimes they are too short, like it's, it's hard to organize like these into full chapters, like with one character point of view, because there is like so many different competing perspectives right now. So I think like what I said at the beginning is like the chapters have to form themselves naturally. Like that's just part of my writing process. So I think like, as, as I go, I might have to go back, like obviously in draft two time and just like reorganize some of them to make them make more sense. Um, but okay. I'm glad everyone's following. Okay. Um, 
and that I think it's reading like an action movie like you're skipping to the scene that like is important to watch at that second and like in movies scenes happen pretty quick I love this pace I love the pace and if you don't like the pace you can always fix it in revision that's true pace is something you can you can fix and I I find it's better to go faster than too slow but but either or you can you can fix by cutting or adding you know it's not that big of a deal Is um, I remember is Cleopatra and Pom- Pompey, is that it? I think that they're both going to be there. It's Mark Antony. Mark Antony, man, I'm getting all my Romans confused. No, 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 it's all good. It, th- there are three of them, but I anyway, I don't want to give. If you don't, I think you probably know the story, Lance. But if if Pat doesn't know the story, for like you're unfamiliar with the story, and it, this is another an- anecdote, but it's like too funny not to share, like. Earlier in the pandemic, my husband and I watched HBO's Rome, and I had not seen it in years. And it's a fantastic show if anyone listening has not watched yet. Highly recommend it. And it's all about Julius Caesar, like the first season, and then the second season's all about Octavian. And um, my husband did not know what happened to Julius Caesar. Like, he was unspoiled for that piece of history. So, like, for him to watch that show, it was pretty exciting. So, I, part of me is, like, if you don't know the story about what happens after with, you know, all these, like, historical characters, it's pretty exciting. Just that portion, right? Like, just that could make its own book. But to have, like, potentially modern people witnessing, like, the machinations is pretty awesome as well. So, hmm. yeah, like, I'm, I'm excited to, to continue. Now I'm finally excited about this book. Now I'm like, oh, this isn't actually a chore. So this week I like it. But, you know, in the next few weeks, who knows? I could I could not like it again. But you'll keep writing. Yeah, I have to. I'm you have like, to send it to us. Yeah, I know. I'm obligated. This is this is the thing with writing groups, guys. See, you have to, like, provide content. And we're forgiven because we have three weeks. I think a lot of people, it's every week, and they read every person's every week. Oh, no. I haven't even started for mine. I guess I'm one week in. But I have planned out all my bullet points. Keen listeners will notice that it was supposed to be my turn. Um, so I've already skipped a week and it's my second submission, but I moved. Get at it. Get at me. Yeah. You had a life event. Um, Jess, how did you feel writing this section? Um, okay. So one of my tricks, which I probably should have talked about when I was talking about writing earlier. Um, one of my tricks is to never leave like, my writing at, at like a dead end. So like if I finish a chapter, I need to at least write the first sentence of the next chapter so I can like pick up where I left off, like snap the fingers um, or else I'm going to have a lot of trouble like forming that beginning section. So I was really doing that a lot with this work. Um, and yeah, like I'm finally starting to feel like I really know the characters and they're telling me, what they want to happen um right now like Sadie and Milo are my favorite two characters to write I like Hugh but he is like in a very passive role right now and he's gonna have a way more active role like later on so unfortunately things are just just keep happening to him and that's okay sometimes characters are passive and you know things happen to them so do you find switching viewpoints is like a major road or a speed bump yeah I find like I'll get to the end of one viewpoint story and then I'll have to start the other one. I have to like, Oh, remember like 
what the setting's like there and, and what's going on. It always takes me a while to yeah. switch gears. Yeah. So I think Pat, honestly, because you have way longer viewpoint chapters, um, like that might be where the challenge is coming from. For me right now, I'm finding it kind of easy because like I'm only giving a few pages to each character. So, and, and they're all happening like in very, very closely entwined to each other. So like Sadie, Cassie and Milo are all in the same vicinity right now and and they're carrying out the action together it won't be like that the whole time whereas you know Hugh's far away so maybe Hugh's like perspective has been a little bit harder but I find keeping them close together has been a little bit easier but yeah like I I kind of feel your pain on that and that that might happen a bit later as the story gets more complicated yeah I found especially like when you introduce a new viewpoint character you have to kind of like decide what they're all about or whatever and and, and well, you have a bunch of new locations, even within the same viewpoint, like Hugh's gone all over the place. So the restarting with the new room is always takes a second. Totally. Um, well, I didn't have any hot takes, but I have a, I have a hot take, but I also have, uh, the, the most nitpickiest nitpick of all totally time. Fine. I, oh, I need to, nice. no, I know, but I want to see what. Pat thinks because I think this one is so irrelevant that nobody will care. <laughs> so Milo, before we know he's from the past, is from where? Well, he says oh, right. he's from uh, Bulgaria. From Bulgaria, Bulgaria yeah. right? So if I meet someone from Bulgaria and he is known, confirmed to have an accent. Yeah. Mm, accented voice. He's gonna have a Thrace a Thracian accent from like two thousand years ago. Yeah. He won't have a Bulgarian accent. And I would know right away. Anyway, they just like I don't know what Bulgarian sounds like, but you know, you know what Slavic languages sound like, and there was no Slavic languages. Mm, so you need to go more Thr- obscure. Well, I'm just wondering, like, I worry that he's he could have an excuse. You said, well, he's you know, it's like, oh well he they took me Palmer took me when I was eight years old. So maybe he doesn't have an accent because of that, but then he wouldn't have an accent. Well, you can have an indistinguishable accent, for... accent, like, cause it's mostly trans. Like if you heard someone who is speaking in French and they have an accent, like it would be like a German person speaking in French. I find that super difficult to pinpoint. See so if someone is mostly all the way there, this is very, ah. this is very interesting. And it's actually not a nitpick because one of the things, so I mean, more of Milo's story obviously is going to be revealed, and I don't want to spoil so much because, like, I want people to stay interested. But you know, this is also part of the writing process, right? Like having these discussions and working these things out. But if you are, so I, I think if you're under ten or twelve, and you learn to speak another language fluently, you might not have an accent. But it also depends on how often you are speaking that other language and how often you're speaking your native tongue. And Milo is like trilingual really because he speaks Latin, he speaks English, and then he speaks the language of his his home country, like where he is from, like the the very local dialect. Um, Probably some sort of three. Yeah, probably. Because I think that's what, that's what was there. That was like the Danube area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so depending on how, how much time he has spent in our world and how much time he has spent in his world, I'm not, I'm not sure how to make it. So I, I'm not sure. Like, I, yeah, I'm just, I know how to fix okay. it. Okay. 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 Tell it. me. So, so I think that sometimes I've had these problems as well with the book, with my book. And sometimes it's because the reader will catch something and will be like, wait a minute. This kicks me out of the story because the author didn't address it. But you don't actually have to solve the problem. You just have to address it. So you can just, if for instance, if um, if Cassie thinks like, he says he's from Bulgaria. I didn't think his accent sounded very Bulgarian and then never talk about it again. But do you think he would even have an accent realistically? Definitely. Maybe not. But then but then he would not have an accent. So you have to write that out. You need the accent part because that's what tipped me off. Because he wasn't like it's, Italian it's esoteric. It was mysterious. an accent. Yeah. Well, maybe that it's a very a light that... accent. What if you choose like, a you more obscure speaking... country? That... No, it's like, you know, Christoph Waltz. Do, do you know who I'm talking about? Christoph Waltz, the dude from Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah, yeah. The... When he speaks English, yeah. like it's it's like he is speaking in like with a particular lilt. Like he speaks excellent English and he's speaking with. But you can tell it's some sort of Eastern yes. European accent. Yes. So I, yeah, you know what? This is this is a good discussion because I'm not sure what what necessarily to do in this situation. Could um, you choose like some small region in Italy and just say like, oh, he's this and this, and would it sound close enough? I don't know. Yeah. Do you know what's funny is that. Um, and, and the ancient authors talk about this too, about how like different regions like from the empire have like the different tones of speaking Latin and like different kind of regional accents. Regional accents were super pronounced until recently, really recently, like national languages, not really a thing until the past couple hundred years, right? So. Right. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. See, this is this is the smallest problem, and you have. I would say in your revision, though. by the time you hit revision, you'll have a solution. It would be kind of okay. fun though, if like Milo is just kind of this weird guy that he doesn't really let anyone get close to him. Like Cassie's known him for years now; she doesn't actually know him, and like there's not really much of an inkling besides the fact that he's kind of a weird dude that anything would be off, and then all of a sudden to hear him speaking perfect Latin, you know, that is something mm. clicks with that. That's a good reveal. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. would it be, oh yeah. Mm. Or, or too... she's like, oh, not now Milo. Like I'm, I'm like working on this translation. He just looks at it and he says, it, it says this, you know, I'm working on this Thesian translation. Yeah. Or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I have a, like that. I have a really, um, I have one uh, that I think would be really appealing to an extremely small subset okay. of people, but not most people. Be like, if Milo, if if uh, he went over, like looks over Cassie's documents and then reads it in Latin, but he reads it in classical Latin, like where they pronounce C's as K's mm. and V's as W's, instead of how we, like we say Veni, Vidi, Vici, which is like reading it like Italian, but they would have said whatever like wenny witty wiki yeah so if he reads it that way and she'd be like what that's weird yeah. but again it's like that's getting into like a level of 
pretty esoteric foreshadowing yeah. that 0.1% of the other hear. thing about that's like annoying about ha- a character that has an accent I think about actually I was thinking about Hagrid from Harry Potter because like when you read those books Hagrid has a very pronounced accent that is written into the story right so like anytime you read Hagrid's part you're reading his um dialogue like in his accent and it is hard to write an accent and and so I was thinking that about Milo too, where I'm like, this whole fucking book, do I want to be writing it in this, his perspective or like anytime he has to speak English, like in that weird thing. And it's very important that he was found as a boy. Um, I, uh, by these I did people. a couple of French accents in my last book. Yes. And so I did a bit of research on how to like pull it off without being annoying. And that was basically what they said. They're like, do as little of it as you can do mm. and try to do as much accent through like the sentence structure rather than the, the word spelling. So it is very like you have to dial it in and not be annoying with it. And Hankard probably like, you know, once every sentence or so they throw an extra R or whatever to show it that he's speaking funny, but it's probably as like more subtle than you remember. I bet if you went back and read it. Oh, yeah. Just writer things. You know, all the crazy shit we have to research to, like, make our books believable, eh? When I say writing is hard, this is what I mean. It was so, it was worth it to do that research. I had it, like... Totally. I spelled the words wrong in French, and then instead I just changed the grammar. And Mm. it was way more effective. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting that there was, like, specific research about that. Pat, that's like oh, how to make a how to make a, a sentence structure seem like I don't know. Well, if you you have to know it pretty well, I think, because you have to basically be able to say it out loud and then put it on. Like that's how I did it. Anyways. I just said things in French and made them sound like an exaggerated French accent, and then I wrote it down like that. Without... You also didn't exact you you say exaggerated, but also like it, like you said, it was like sparingly like Hagrid, where like it's obvious for the characters, but it's not annoying for the reader, mm-hmm. right? And I know, I know an author. I talked about this. Uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson had talked about this in one of his his because one of his books there's a character who says a word like like a or you know, which we say like twice a sentence, mm. right? It's like, and and he says, well, you want to put it in every sentence, but that's so annoying to read. So put it in once every two paragraphs, and it's a lot for the reader. I know it's not realistic, sure. but you got to consider the reader, right? Yeah. Totally, totally. Even like the couple f bombs that Cassie's dropped, like I can tell that she swears, even though it's not very much. And then, of course, there's Train Spotting, a very successful book, which is completely written in almost illegible. Script I couldn't read and that book. Swears every two every two words is a swear word. Yeah, I I do have a hot take. Um, I think there's got to be a traitor, right? This is one of those books. It's high pace adventure, and they're going to uncover the thing, and then they're going to all be standing around the the treasure. They're like, "Oh, we found it!" And they're going to hear the gun click, and it's going to be like one of the characters like hand it over, right? Like it's got to happen. I'm trying to figure that out. Problem is, we've had viewpoints from everyone. So, is there a viewpoint character whose viewpoint has managed to hide enough information that it? that they could feasibly be a traitor. Sadie Edwards, I would say. That's my that was my best guess so far. But you know, I don't I, I don't know about stealing the end treasure. 
but I could see her having her own hidden motivations for sure. Yeah. But maybe she would steal it and take it back to the government. I get to retire early and go back to Virginia. Where was it? No. It was, <laughs> uh, it was Virginia. It no, was Virginia. Was it? No, it was for sure. For sure. Yeah, it was Virginia. Virginia. And, but yeah, I, also again, though, 18 year old, super powerful in government, Marco, that's what I'm like, how, I guess my hot take is, uh, that it's Cleopatra that they're going to see. Oh, I walked you right into that. Didn't I? <laughs> you literally told A little us. Bit. It's true. You don't. <laughs> I'm so proud of myself when I wrote that line. I'm like, ah, they're going to guess right away and I want them to, but you know, I, like, I think everyone would think that she would be in Cairo or something like that, you know, with the pyramids, but they didn't, they didn't live there. If you had said there. Cairo, I maybe would have gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. But then, then there doesn't have to be two rips, right? So they're in the plane and he's like, we're going to Alexandria. We don't know anything about the rip except that it's there. Can he fly through the rip? No. Cause he can't go flying through ancient Egypt. That would, see the airplane that, would, shit. that would mess up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but it might be a parallel timeline that doesn't affect the future. Oh no, because they're looking for clues from that timeline, so it definitely does yeah. affect the. Yeah, yeah, I can't. Okay, they can't no, fly so an airplane back yeah. there. If they're flying, yeah, because if they they've got to be flying to to Egypt, and then Already. using a secondary rip, Finding or maybe rip. he can like generate the rip or something. We don't know how he he's exactly. a, maybe a, make, they, maybe the richest man on earth. Although Marco had to go go back to the rip. But well, I think maybe doesn't it, mean they didn't engineer it. It's probably still hard. It can be difficult yeah. to then they can only do one every once in a while. It's Who not knows? Part three, part three, we'll find oh. out. What's gonna happen? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and just um you know, I you know, I, I know that the hot take segment might sound like it definitely sounds like it's the a, a bit fairly silly, but I think it's really important. I think it's super important. It was really important for me because I, I wanted, cause I planned out my whole book and I wanted to make sure through the hot takes that people's guesses about the future were close enough in line to what I was doing that, uh, that I could see if my foreshadowing was working. So again, I, I think I've said that before, but just to reiterate there, they're really important for the author, I think, to know what's coming, uh, or to know if they've foreshadowed what foreshadowed what they're going to do, uh, if they foreshadowed well. So I'm up next. I did start writing. That's um, good. And I think the hot take section will be useless for mine after that segment of why hot take section is good because I've decided I'm not going to figure out what's going to happen until the end. I didn't write out any plan. Lance and I talked for a bit, um, what, a couple months ago and did like a super broad outline and that's all I'm working with. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What I'm, I'm going with, I have an outline, a very, I have a much broader outline than I did for my last book. My last book was like really like outline chapter by chapter. Uh, but I have my, my coolest scenes. So mm. pretty happy about that. And uh, that's all we have for today. If you want to do the homework for next week's episode, you will be able to find my latest draft posted on patreon.com slash WGBC podcast. We are also WGBCP on Twitter. Thank you for listening. And remember to just keep writing.
like Jess, do you actually listen to the podcast? Yeah, I listen to parts of it. I find it very hard to listen to my own voice, to be honest, guys. Like, oh really? Yes, because I'm like, oh, when, you stumbled over that word. Worse. I didn't find it so bad. I say, oh, well, weird. no, I, I mean, like, oh, frag. I guess I talk like this in real life, where I just like Hugh Grant. It's called Hugh Granting. How, do you know if I say that? Like, does that bring anything to mind to you? You know how no. Hugh Grant, like in every movie he's in, it's like, oh, um, uh, well. well Oh, I, I was just oh. saying, I was just going to say, um, he, like, you know, he just uses like filler words like for five minutes before he actually says a sentence. And I'm like, Jess, like, stop being like, stop you granting, you know, it's definitely like part of communication that you don't think about is interrupting. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you have to let people know that you're talking. I like kind of like, like my, like my book, but I like, don't like, like, like like this chapter like you, <laughs> you know, know what that's me every podcast. i completely like, understood like, like, what like. you just said what you were trying to convey 